design and learning sciences. I took a look at our analytics and I just saw that we have at least one listener from England and one from Australia. So wherever you are, awesome. I hope you stay tuned and I hope you like what you've heard so far. This week our readings are kind of split because some of you are teaching in schools and others are not. But we do have a shared reading, which is a chapter from Warren Berger's A More Beautiful Question. So we're going to start off with that and then we're going to talk about essential questions, and how do we use core ideas to frame a unit. Although I think it has applications to even outside of school, so I hope you listen, even if you are not a teacher. Before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself first? My name is Chris Owens. Um, My undergraduate degree is in computer science, and um, I began my journey first as a programmer and then a project manager at Northrop Grumman. But my teaching journey began when I left that job to retrain adults who could no longer stay in their original line of work due to a disability and needed to acquire new skills for a different line of work. I taught these adults the necessary skills to become computer programmers and and network engineers. And I left that job when I moved to Virginia, and I went back to school to become a high school math teacher. So I taught a mixture of math and computer science at a local high school. And then I came back to Long Island, and my goal was to build up their computer science program so more students could have access. Today, I only teach computer science classes, and I've needed to recruit other teachers since the program has grown tremendously in the five years I've been at the school. So I feel like I've come full circle from teaching computer science to adults to now teaching computer science to high school students, and I'm in my discipline that I love. So I gave everyone a reading from Warren Berger's A More Beautiful Question, and the chapter title is called Why We Stop Questioning. What did you think about this chapter? I Immediately when I read this, I thought of my nephew, who I watched when he was young, and um, I nicknamed him Question Boy. And it was always why questions that he asked. Um, and I you know, began to wonder, like, did he really want to know the answers or was he just wanted to talk about this? So I started limiting him to five why questions. And after reading the article, you know, maybe obviously rethink that line of uh, thought because they're really building so many synapses when they're asking these questions and, you know, building those little boxes in their brain to categorize stuff. I remember reading about this in the readings we had from the brain, and I was fascinated by, you know, how many neurons and the fact that they have, what is it, like a quadrillion or different uh, synapses they create by the age of like five years old, and then we start pruning them after that. So, the, one of the little um, figures that they had was on the precipitous drop of student of asking questions. And at elementary school, it's like at 66%. And um, then when you get down to high school, it gets down to like 22%. So I, I wondered, is it because... You know, there's so many factors that we can look at, but I'm wondering if one of the factors is the pruning of these synapses and that, or is it just all the other environmental factors? You know, they're growing older. They're maybe 
not as curious because they have information. Um, maybe they're afraid. I think fear plays a big factor because they don't want to be ridiculed by their peers, maybe, or they don't want to get that answer wrong. So they always think, oh my gosh, if I get it wrong, everybody's going to look at me and think I'm stupid, which is not correct, but you know, it is a mindset. So we have to get them out of this particular mindset. Um, and then I wondered, does this happen with homeschool kids? Like, because they may have more latitude to follow their passions. So I don't know where the environmental or, you know, social factors come in. Or is it a brain function? Based on the reading, it's, it looks like the argument that the author is trying to make is that students are made to feel self-conscious about asking questions. Maybe not directly, but the environment is not particularly encouraging them of asking questions and more answering questions, right? So I think that over time, that kind of accumulates. And I think the book is trying to open that up and, and maybe reverse that because uh, in the reading, they say that that's students actually, or novices actually, because we talked about novices before, novices that often ask the best questions because they're not so embedded in the thing and they are able to approach the topic in a way that not, the expert might not have thought of. So I think the thing is trying to argue that students should be encouraged to ask more questions um, and maybe ask better questions, which is actually pretty hard to do. Yeah, which brings me to like, how do you create that environment in the classroom so that you know, Meyer posed the question of what would a classroom look like if we wanted to make big being wrong less threatening, meaning taking away that fear, that fear factor and turning into a positive, like Edison saying, you know, I didn't fail. It was just a hundred thousand different experiments that moved me towards finding the right idea. So how do we lessen that threat in a classroom so that students are more prone to asking, you know, questions that will lead towards, you know, discovery and not feel threatened? And I think that's a real challenge. Um, one thing I do do that I found that works kind of nicely, um, I have an AP computer science A class. And so every day I have a, what I call the problem of the day. It's a multiple choice um, AP style question. And it's to get the students um, prepared to seeing these kind of questions and maybe how to answer them. Uh, I don't, I, if they get it right, they get a extra credit point. If they don't get it right, it doesn't count against them at all. So I found that the kids are really invested in this and that they come in and they're like, do we got a POD today? And then I go over it. So I don't show which kids got it right or wrong. Uh, I just, you because I do it on Google Forms, I use their reference uh information. And so they give me, you know, a bar chart and they give a pie graph and it shows the percentage of students that got it right, which students answered what questions. And then we talk about, you know, strategies, like how could you solve this? And how did you do this? And how did you do, how did you approach this problem? So it's not threatening for them. And I've, I find it to be a win-win and they want to do this. Kids, even if they're not in class, will 
because it's on a Google form, they'll answer it at home. But I, that's not always the answer. That doesn't get them to do inquiry as much, but it created a less threatening environment for them to want to answer something and not feel like if they got it wrong, they were going to be, you know, pointed out and saying, that's not the right answer. Yeah, I think lowering the stakes is a big part of it. Um, I mean, you made a note about productive failure, which is, it's kind of like a redesign of the curriculum to make it more centered around discovery and not around one solution and sharing strategies over time, that kind of thing, which is not exactly the same as asking questions. But I think questions can come out of that, Mm -hmm. you know, sharing strategies because students get to look at it from a different, you know, viewpoint and they, they may never have been able to see it, you know, that way. I think that's why I like programming so much, because as long as they get the answer that is supposed to be gotten out of whatever question was asked, how they approached it and, and got the mm-hmm. answer doesn't matter. Right. And then I can I usually show them the different approaches and I'll say, look, all of these work. Some may be more efficient, some may be more elegant, but they're not wrong because you all got to the end. You just maybe got there in a different fashion. That works in a lot of cases because you do if you're not so focused on the well, you are focused on the process, but you're not focusing on a specific process. I think it makes sense to approach right. it that way for sure. Yeah, and also hopefully they are able to see how other people have done it and maybe figure out a better way. You know, if they compare them their work and then compare it with someone else's, um, and they notice a difference. Well, I guess that's it. So now we can get to that. You know, they're comparing, they're contrasting, they're formulating um, maybe a different idea or maybe even sparks an even better idea that nobody has come up with. And then they look at it from maybe even a different approach. So they're building on each other's Mm -hmm. work and maybe they can take that idea and apply it to the next problem that they might have to solve. It's a little bit like the what you just did in digital literacies, right? where you were given a task to design a video, an infographic, and you can't see what other people have done. And then afterwards you do. And then all you and your peers have done approached it very differently, even though you arrive at the same thing. So I think in that sense, I think it will be a version of that, right? Exactly. And I, I think that that gives people some creativity. So they feel invested in it, not boxed in, Um, of only having to do it one way. And we can see other people's thought processes, hopefully from the end result, and then go, wow, that was a really good idea. I never thought about that. You know, maybe next time I do a video, I'll apply that technique, or maybe I'll use the tool they use because it sounds like it was a lot easier to manage and manipulate than the one that I chose. And I think that that would be kind of really helpful to, if we did that at the end and everybody could then discuss like, this is the tool I use. This is the tool I use. This is the tool I use. So we have, as, as Brandon puts it, you know, we're putting everything into a toolbox and we're carrying that toolbox around with us and we're taking it out when we need it. And we're always adding to it. And maybe we're sharing those tools with others. So it was a really good analogy. And the metacognitive step is important because you ask them to reflect on What did you do? How did you compare? And I think it's important to have that step in there so that they're not just moving on to the next thing, right? 
I agree because the idea is to build and to get better. And you don't get better if you don't reflect on what you've done and gotten some feedback so you know where improvement can take place. Yep. So let's move on to the other reading. Uh, I was, it was talking about the big idea. And I, I thought to myself, are we starting with the big idea? Because they started talking about the stages of developing you know, a lesson. Yeah. And stage four being that big idea, but you're starting with stage one, which is the granular, uh, developing the lesson itself. So it brought me to the question of, do we start with the big idea and then work our way down? And then we actually start creating the lessons and work our way back Mm -hmm. up? Or are we starting with the lesson itself and then starting to build around it? And the whole idea of the backward design to me would be starting with the lesson and then, you know, building up to it. But you can't do the lesson if you don't have the big idea. Well, just to clarify, what do you mean by the lesson and big idea? Like the way you're using Um, it. The big idea being the abstract idea that you want students to um, work Mm -hmm. towards. And it's not just one topical question that would be in a lesson. Like, I want to teach you kids how to find the mean uh, or the average. Mm -hmm versus what are the statistical tools that can be used in, you know, the real world to help us make meaning of statistical mm-hmm. data okay. as kind of like a big overarching idea. And then there's many lessons you can build from that, ones that have to do with mean, median, mode. Uh, well, I think just based on... The fact that they call it backwards design is is to start at the end, which is where you want students to end up. Because in their reading on page fifty seven, they if you look at stage one, they they start okay. with the goals, right? So, what do you want students to be able to do at the end of your lesson, or sorry, end of your unit, and then to plan backwards from there? That's why it's called backwards design. Okay, that makes a lot of sense now because when I looked at that, I didn't. I was looking at backwards being almost like a top-down design, Mm. that you start with this big idea, then you you break it into units, and then you develop each of these lessons. But all they've done is turn that upside Mm -hmm. down and said that the big idea is the overall goal, and then we're going to break that into smaller ideas or units, and then we're going to break our units into, into lessons. So... That kind of makes more sense now. And I guess then if we look at that, uh, there's a nice graphic on page 71, clarifying content priorities, mm-hmm. where they have the big ideas or the core tasks in in the middle, and then you work outwards. So I think that is a good visual to put this into perspective. Because I think it's often easy to start with well, because they're saying you should start with the big ideas and then move, you know, move back, move out from there. Right. I think oftentimes, um, if you look at the examples they gave in the outer circle, the example was key figures who contributed. I think with a lot of like history examples, people always start often start with the key figures and dates and all that stuff. And they're saying you should start in the other direction and not worry about those as much as understanding the core concepts first. 
which actually brought me to, you know, another question that I had, which was, if you're going to start this unit and you're starting with the big idea in mind, I should say, should you be stating that big idea Mm. um, in mind at the beginning of this to try and create, I don't know, buzz, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, excitement, something to say, this is the goal we're going to be working Mm -hmm. towards? Or do we uncover that at the end that now let's put all of this together and see if we can make sense of it and and how would this fit into this big idea? So I think it would depend on what you're teaching, whether you talk about explicitly a big idea or not. But for me, I think the thing you start with usually is the essential question when you're talking about like a more formal education. I think that is the question that you want to ask that is hopefully interesting enough that they would the students would be hooked onto it. Um, and that has something to do with the big idea you want students to get at. Because there was a little confusion in that, you know, one sentence, I think it was on page 69, Lynn Erickson, mm-hmm. uh, who's a colleague of the author, states that the big idea should be represented by one or two words. But then on page 70, the author states that the big idea can manifest itself in various mm-hmm. formats, a word, a phrase, a sentence, a question. So I was like, wow, that's a little confusing. <laughs> But then I thought to myself, you can have that big idea, which they gave, you know, if you want to pull it out of the standards, uh, we're talking about using those nouns. And most of those nouns that they said, use them in pairs, which would be that one or two words. So, and most of them were like compare and contrast. They were antonyms of each other that, you know, light and dark, um, absolute and, um, you know, irrelevant. So I found it really interesting. And then I said, well, kids aren't going to, that's so broad. Mm -hmm. You need a question. You you need something that they can focus in on to be able to answer, you know, that idea. Uh, They gave some good science, they gave some good examples, particularly in um, science Mm -hmm. for, Let's say the big idea is chemistry's periodic law. Mm. And then the question would be, you know, where did atoms of the universe come from and what is their destiny? And that's abstract because they don't know. And sometimes it's a really hard concept to like wrap your head around, like, what the heck? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what their destiny is. I know we need atoms. Everything's made of atoms. But what do you mean their destiny? Well, we talked about questions. I think you invite further questions, right? You invite interest. You invite more engagement than just presenting it as something that they have to learn because that's the way it is. Like a few weeks ago, you mentioned something that's hard for students, which is recursion, right? Is that what you mentioned? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I feel like (laughs) that would be a big idea. Oh, yeah. It it is a huge idea. It's difficult for kids to wrap their head Mm -hmm, around. One of my questions that I had in here was, you know, authentic. We talk about trying to use authentic um, real-world examples. And and that's a difficult one to have as a real-world example. Since you've taught both computer science and math, I feel like computer science is at least, it has an aspect of practicality to it. It's used to do something that is is one step more practical than math, which can be even more abstract. Yes, we have to teach kids. So I'm teaching 10th and 11th graders about simple interest and compound interest. And 
where we use that the most? Loans. Mm-hmm. Take out a car loan. You take out a school loan. Well, these kids <laughs> don't have credit cards. These kids don't understand. They, they're not taking out loans. Maybe their parents are, but they're not taking out loans. So they have no context in which to apply this. It makes It has no relevance to them at that point in time, maybe later, but at this point in time, it has no relevance, but yet it is a concept that we have to teach. So how do we go about, I can use real world world examples, but not ones that they can relate to that makes sense, you know, to them. Some contracts are really abstract and I don't think kids can ever see the application. Mm. And so a common question in mathematics is, when am I ever going to use this? And as a teacher, sometimes I'll say, well, um, I'm not sure, but it's a basis for blah, blah, blah. And this is where it's used in the real world. But if you're not going to become a financial analyst yeah. or go you know, watch the markets on Wall Street, it, it's not applicable to you. And so I think kids feel like a lot of mathematics is not applicable. And so what's the need of learning it when they know they're not going to go to school for it, let's say if they're going to college or if they're doing some kind of career um, and getting a skill that it's not applicable. Yeah. So I understand where they're coming from, but I'm trying to make it relevant. I mean, I think that relevance is one way to get their attention, but it's not the only way. It's the most straightforward way if you can connect it directly to something they are familiar with. Even in the reading, it, it said. I mean, I guess especially after we get to when we get to the essential questions, the questions is not necessarily things that they have a stake in per se. Um, it's just interesting questions, and even just going back to the reading about the about questioning, it's the idea that people are curious about things that why is the sky blue? There's no relevance there, right? But it's a question that that people are just curious about, and curiosity is a very powerful thing. And so the idea is to elicit the curiosity and and feed it, I guess, um, and hopefully align it as well. I think it's kind of difficult to do with the amount of content that we have to cover in, um, you know, curriculum. I always use the term that there's a lot of breadth and not a lot of depth. So we have so much we have to cover, yet we don't have the ability to cover it deeply and build a strong foundation. And if we had that, we wouldn't have to cover so much material because students could actually then use that foundational knowledge and, and make better connections so that if they're given a problem they've never seen, they can apply that foundational knowledge and work towards that, yeah. uh, you know, solving that question. So it becomes a slippery slope in that we want to ask these inquiring questions. We want to ask students to be engaged and ask asking inquiring questions, but we're time limited Mm -hmm. and it's an unfortunate situation. Yeah. I know I mentioned this in previous episodes. I talk about the spiral curriculum, which is where you design a curriculum like a spiral shape and you keep revisiting concepts while you move ahead, but you revisit things from before, which is kind of a way to achieve depth as well as breadth because they're not losing what they learned before, but they're making these connections over and over again. I think that is a good way because I do, especially in K-12, I agree that it is very difficult to, when you look at the standards and and what they need to do with it, um, it's hard to devote time or have the luxury of time to dig deeply into something. 
So I think that's the whole idea of understanding by design, backwards design, is how do you design something in a way that, that maximizes that? I did have one colleague who did that, and I found it very um, interesting because I had never approached it from that aspect, and I thought it was a good idea because it kept revisiting that. But she also put you know, the forward questions in there too, like things they couldn't answer because they hadn't learned them yet, but she was trying to get them to see if they could make a connection mm-hmm. with that, and they were going to get there. So um, I-, I found that really interesting, and... Um, I've tried to do some of that in my in my lessons, or maybe it might be in some homework that I give them so that you keep revisiting and we keep that, I think it was, it's Barbara Oakley, where she said, you know, recall and repetition is very helpful in building those connections in your brain. And I know there's been a lot of poo-pooing of uh, repetition, but I feel that in, in some aspects, it's really important, like learning your multiplication table, because it's always there. What were some other questions you had about the reading? I'll just go back to the whole big idea thing. So when should that be introduced? Should it be introduced at the very beginning and so kids know what they're going to be working towards? And then should be we be reintroducing that as we're going along, so kids can start making, hopefully, connections to try and build towards answering that. Hmm. What's your thoughts on that? I think you would probably introduce them towards the end instead of the beginning. I think this would be, it would be also be something interesting for them to kind of think about, like, what do you think the big idea is? Have them make the connections. Um, maybe they'll connect it to different things, you know, you know, I think that would be kind of interesting as well. Would it be interesting for them if you said, what do you think the big idea is? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and have and have students maybe try and figure out what that big, maybe even, they talk later on about overarching ideas. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can get to that. But, you know, that big idea that, you know, what are we trying to get to here? Yeah, no, definitely. I think so. Because um, if you tell them, they'll be like, oh, okay, all right. Let's move on. Um, right. But when, you, when <laughs> right. you have them make the connections, I think that's, it's for one thing it's probably more they probably remember it more right well i think when they come up with it they remember it more and because it's their discovery it's not me just or us as teachers just telling them yeah. what the big idea is but they that they've put these all to then you know they've put it all together yeah then you know they've thought about this maybe theme that connects all the strands from each of the lessons together so they can uncover, we'll say, that big idea because it is supposed to be abstract and it might even be confusing. And if we give it to them at the beginning, it may be a turnoff. Mm-hmm. Unveiling it at the end is probably a better idea and maybe even having them try and figure out what it is is a better idea. Yeah. I mean, if you have an essential question, I think maybe that would give them a hint as a general direction. I agree because you're working towards something. So those essential questions should always hark back to the big idea. And I like the term the author used. It's a, it's the linchpin mm. that holds all of the um, lessons together, kind of like that the, the axle on a wheel. Yeah. And that the lessons are each of the spokes that go out. You know, we can group spokes together as a unit. 
And so all those units then together would tie in to be the big idea. It's a good picture. Yeah, it's a good analogy. Yeah. How about we talk about standards? Because I think that coming up with these essential questions isn't easy. And there's so many standards. I look at all the standards for, we'll say, Algebra 2 or Algebra 1 in mathematics. It, it can make your head spin. And there's no way that you can fit them all in so or unpack all those standards to say, which are the ones that are most salient um, that I need to maybe focus in on. And I, I think if we want to talk about this backwards design, um, you know, I was taught that you should always start with your assessment and then develop your lessons around what your assessment is. So if we look at that schema and the regents being obviously the ultimate mm -hmm. assessment because the kids have to take this at the end, um, should teachers then be basing those big ideas off of the regents standards that are given so that they make sure that they cover the material and would that be helpful in them choosing big ideas that might fit into the regents type questions i hate focusing on the test because but unfortunately we're boxed in to do that i think what the authors try to say and i think it's a general good idea is if you have the you know the standards you need to follow that's that can be your big idea or your um the goal that you want to establish, but not necessarily design around a specific assessment. Because if you are able to teach the concepts correctly, then they'll they'll be able to handle the assessment. It's so so you're not tying yourself specifically to the assessment, but tying them to the things that they need to know in order to do the assessment. Yes, and I agree with that more than here's the assessment. Now I'm going to design every lesson to answer the questions on my assessment. I do always have a goal in mind, like when I create assessments, but my goal is more, you know, big topics, not specific individual questions I'm going to ask. And you got to get this particular one right. I don't like to get down to too much granularity when I'm designing the lesson, because I feel like then I'm only focusing in on those yes or no kind of questions so they'll get a multiple choice question correct mm -hmm. um, instead of learning the concept. I, I say to my students quite often, I go, boy, if I could just throw out all these tests, <laughs> I would totally approach this yeah. differently because but I'm focused in on you learning and understanding the content and maybe even choosing what is it that you want to learn? I mean, this is what I have to teach you, but what else could we possibly learn that you think is interesting that would maybe be helpful and I'm not worrying about time constraints or an assessment at the very end to see if they've gained the knowledge they're supposed to gain during the class. I think a lot of teachers would approach things differently if we were unbound from assessments. Yeah, for sure. And these yeah. high-stick tests has not been good for learning, ironically. No, it hasn't. And uh, I think because teachers don't have that time to build a foundation, teachers don't have the latitude, and we're forced to cover so much content that we can't build depth. You know, often 
kids will say, well, I don't get it. And crushing to say, well, we have to move on. You'll need to come to extra help yeah. because we can't spend the time in class on on this. Or I can't answer that question now because we don't have the time. I think that that crushes kids. I think that they figure, why should I even bother asking questions then? Because and if they say what they don't understand, it's better than if they don't say it at all. So that's a that's a very good.、Um, And I, I, I guess depending on the question, if you can say put a pin in it and we'll get back to it because the next lesson builds on this or something like that, if that's possible.、Um, right, or maybe an exit ticket、uh, where they write down what questions do you have, you know, kind of like yeah, what yeah, you do、yeah. at the end and say, do you have any questions? And they can then pose maybe something they didn't understand in the unit or something they might、yeah. want to build on from there.、Um, I know that's more work on the teacher's part because they'd have to be. You know, looking through these exit tickets all the time, and then、uh, I think using them maybe judiciously would definitely be helpful. Yeah, it's it's tough to find that balance. You only have that much time, right? And, and so much content to cover. So、right. I was just trying to think of what would be helpful for a, you know a new teacher who was trying to come up with lesson plans and and focus in on these big ideas. Where would they start? Like, where could they pull these big ideas from? And so the standards are helpful. But then calling out what they need is very difficult. I think it's a chapter three reading where they they talk a little bit about the standards and they say that if you look at the standards and the sub parts of the standards, there are like thousands of things you need to、oh, get right. through.、Um, right, right,、um, which is not realistic. I don't think you know that's that's reasonable. It's definitely not realistic. I think that's another reason to use big ideas because big ideas are overlapping、right. in all these different things. So that allows you to get to more things. If you focus too narrowly on a specific strand of a standard, then yeah, you don't have time. But you, if you identify the big ones, then it allows you to do more with less. I think it was around page sixty-four where they talk about unpacking the standards and establishing goals.、Mm-hmm. Um, they talked about you know when you're coming up with a big idea to look at the nouns that are repeating in a standard, and then look at the verbs. Those are the actions you want to. Take so the nouns would apply to the to the big idea, and the verbs would apply to those、um, essential questions that you need to be asking,、um, mm-hmm. and and help as a help as a guidance. But I think it's the culling out or synthesizing down some of these standards so that you get to like the meat of what you have to achieve is difficult. And I think that does come, hopefully, you know, over time. As a brand new teacher,、uh, you can't hope to be the expert on on that. Yeah. So we can only hope that that comes over time, and maybe working with colleagues who are teaching the same subject matter that might have a little more experience with it, and could you know offer you guidance, or you working as I like the、um, learning communities.、Uh, I I think、mm-hmm. that. They are really helpful because you don't feel alone, and you can bounce ideas off of you know others, and you, they don't just have to be in your school. So especially if you teach a singular subject, it's a good idea、yeah. to have somebody else. I know in computer science, I'm part of what's called the Computer Science Teachers Association, and we get together and we talk about you know approaches and help each other and and share ideas. And so, I think that that should be necessary for everybody, in particular, new teachers. 
not just a mentor, but they need a community of mentors. I think what you don't want new teachers to do or to be over-reliant on is to go Google lesson plans online, right. <laughs> um, which is fine sparingly. But I think the problem is that if you take it directly, you're not really thinking, you're thinking, it seems like you would be thinking more narrowly on how do you teach a very minor thing and not being able to make it your own over relying on pre-made lesson plans or um, and a lot of apps. I know you guys just did the, um, the hands-on thing. A lot of apps are really great. They have like a, a lot of these lessons that you can just share. Right. Um, but that also is limited because, you, you know, if you take someone else's, then, well, you're, first of all, you're stopping yourself from thinking and designing. Right. You're, you're teaching to their lesson and not what maybe your thought is on how you're going to integrate this stuff into a lesson. Using it as a basis, it, it might be a good idea. And, and picking and choosing from different sources. I know I do that all the time. I will go to multiple sources to try and put my lessons together so that it looks the way I want, but maybe somebody has explained a portion of it in a unique sure. way, or maybe that I can go to a website that has a good example, just so I don't have to make the example up. But of course, as you know, in creating that lesson, that's very time consuming because I'm thinking about how do I want to approach the idea? What's the idea? Or we have to, in our school, we have to uh, have an aim, which I guess you can think of as maybe the essential idea for that particular lesson. You know, what are mm -hmm. we working towards? What's the goal that we're supposed to be working towards in this lesson? Um, and it should be in the form of a question. So I guess I can look at that as an essential question. And how am I going to take these pieces from maybe these other lessons to fit into my aim? So the aim I'm not getting from another lesson, I'm creating the aim. Yep. Now, how can I use these information that I've culled from multiple sources to put it into a coherent and cohesive flow so students can understand and be engaged? I do ask a lot of why questions and how and what would you do differently? Which brings us to that whole idea of the why and how questions versus the yes and no questions. It was interesting, you know, when I was first starting, I was told I shouldn't be asking yes and no because those are closed questions versus open-ended questions. But I found that by asking some yes and no questions, I think they work if you follow them up with how can you defend that? And why do you think, you know, What's your reasoning behind agreeing with this? And can you explain how you came to this answer? So I don't want to totally negate yes or no questions. I think it's dependent upon if it's only a definitive answer or can you build on that so they explain it so other students can understand how the answer maybe was derived. Typically, in, if you take a research class, they'll say, don't ask a yes or no interview question because the person will just say yes or no, and then you don't really get a very good response. But it's perfectly fine for an essential questions, right? Because in page 111, they talk about how some of the yes or no questions can make really good essential questions. Um, and, and they give an example of, is universe expanding? That's a very big question. It's a yes or no question. But if you want to answer it, you do need to elaborate beyond saying yes or no, right? You need to think a little bit more about it. 
Well, you could say yes or no, but then it gives me no information of how you know the universe is expanding or, you know, whether it's contracting or maybe we're just at status quo. So, Or even the one day uh, since you do math. So like the question, are numbers real? Is a very, it's a very interesting question to ask. Oh, yeah. I love that question, actually. I mean, it's such a deep question, you know? It is. It's such a philosophical question, like metaphysics and all that stuff, right? Right. But kids only see it on a two-dimensional graph. If you make it on a three-dimensional graph, then you're like, okay, it really is a real number. I just can't represent it on a two-dimensional graph. You know, how do I say it exists? So definitely, yes, yes or no questions are fine. One thing about essential questions that I think um, for if you're doing unit plan assignment, you're going to have, you have essential questions. And the common mistake, I guess, is that it can be hard to distinguish between an essential question and a question that's a good question that a teacher might want to ask, but it's not essential. So I want to make sure that you and everyone else understands the difference. So for example, oftentimes I would get a, someone would say essential question like, why is it important to learn quadratic equations? Now, that's a good question. That's not an essential question. And I think the difference for me is that essential question is kind of like a question that people ask, not like not a teacher would ask, but someone in the real world would ask. I don't think like anyone in the real world asks like, what is a quadratic equation or why is it important? Like that's a teacher, that's a question that a math teacher would ask, right? Right, and, and the, kids will go, no, their question is, why do I need this? Yeah, and it's <laughs> what, like, it's where a, am I ever going to use this? <laughs> Uh, I think That's their question. Like last semester, I think I, I was pointing that out, and some stu uh, a student changed it to, I, I forget whether it's quadratic equation or something else, but they tied it to like, how can, let's say, quadratic equations help predict earthquakes or tsunamis or something like that. Right, but, in, but an even better question would be, can polynomial equations... Be polynomials. Used. I think that, polynomials. that was the one they were talking right. about. <laughs> yeah. Can polynomial equations be used to help us make predictions? And yeah, because one of the units I did was line of best fit, and I used earthquake data to have kids predict when is the next big earthquake going to happen in California. And they came up with that about every 25 to 30 years, a major earthquake of over you know, 0.8 on the Richter scale occurs. And so, believe it or not, it should be coming up very soon. <laughs> I know, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that would be the big essential question Yeah. versus, you know, in this particular example. Yeah. But that even those are hard to come up with. They are. And I think they should be. I think it's easier to come up with a question that is perfectly fine to ask, but not essential. So like with this class, if you look at the syllabus, I divide it into part one, part two, part three, and I have right. each questions. And those, for me, those would be, be essential questions. Like what is learning? What does it mean to have learned something? Is learning understanding the same? And how do you know learning has occurred? For me, that would be an essential question as opposed to something like, what is UDL? That would be a topical what question. What is summer? Yeah, exactly. Those are, again, fine questions to ask, but not essential because most people don't go around asking people, like, what is UDL, right? Well, they're focusing in on a specific idea, though, versus focusing in on a whole overarching idea, which would be an umbrella that covered all of those kind of frameworks. Yeah. So your lessons themselves should maybe be focused on those topical 
questions, or those are the ones you ask inside your lessons. And the essential question might be the question, the or we call I'll call it the aim of you know the lesson mm -hmm. that you're then going to tie together. The authors call it call the essential question signpost to the big ideas. So I think that's maybe a good way of distinguishing the two. If we're talking about that big idea and, and you posed your big ideas as questions, did you start off with that one or two terms that then grew into the question you wanted to ask? So on page, um, on page number 74, so generated big ideas as an outgrowth of related and suggested pairs like absorb and reflect, um, nation and people, nature versus nurture. So when you were coming up with your essential questions, did you, you know, did you think about that? I mean, for me, the big idea is basically the course title. It's technology and instructional design. Like those are... Um... I guess you're right. I could, we could look at that. And that's really like two words that you're using. And then you broke it down to, uh, I'll say, three big essential questions that you want us, or would you call them overarching ideas? Well, I designed them as essential questions. Okay. And I made sure, like, what was important is that learning is always the key thing, because I don't want people to think of, like, what technology do I use? Like, that's not the first question you ask. It's more like, what is what do you want people to learn or understand? And then think about, like, like how do you think about technology and Bloom and Samer and all that stuff? So I think for me, that was the, the big idea is how do you design good instructional design and how can technology, how and when, I guess, technology should be used or not used as part of your design. So last week we learned about UDL. I, I thought, how would you say that UDL can work in conjunction with UBD? And are these two separate approaches? Or do we put the UDL framework and with the overarching, you know, our big idea. Like we're creating our lessons based on this UDL framework. That's a really good question. The backwards design of UBD is more of the design, whereas UDL is more of the content. Like how do you present stuff? How do you have student demonstrate understanding? So there are different sides to the, um, to the problem, I guess, or the challenge or whatever you want to call it. Because um, right. UDL doesn't say anything about instructional design. They talk more about how do you have students take in information? How do you, or how do you have instructional material in a way that different learners can get to it? But they don't really talk about the larger picture. Right. So you would say then UDB is the larger picture, and UDL then is how would you create your lessons to incorporate the universal design? so that you're reaching all learners and you're engaging them. And I think this is where we get down to those essential questions and those topical questions that you're asking inside of it to garner interest. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the why is recruiting interest through the essential questions <laughs> and, you know, optimizing and, and hooking them at the beginning. And then how are, they gonna rep how are you going to represent that information um, next? you know, the what and then the how, you know, how, what tools are we going to use to optimize in them providing answers? So when I thought about it, you know, I immediately thought, are these two different approaches? But then I started thinking about it, as you said, that one is a big skeleton and the other is how are we going to create the 
each of the little mini skeletons. Yeah, if you think of UBD or backwards design as like a like an architecture's blueprint for a building, maybe, and then UDL would be the actual materials that go into designing that thing. They're not unrelated, but they're not the same as well. And you kind of need both. So I think that I think UDL is as you ha- once you have your larger blueprint, um, which is kind of basically what a learning or a unit is, right? It's a blueprint. How do you actually put that into action is where UDL comes in. When students are solving a problem, the problem is posed and they, in essence, have to know what the answer is. So Mm -hmm. they work backwards. They know, here's the result I know I need to produce. What tools am I going to need or what constructs am I going to have to start to maybe apply? Do I have to build a structure? And break it down into parts. And I can think about each of those parts being like a separate lesson. And then the, you know, structure being like a mm-hmm. unit. <laughs> in in um, object-oriented design, we call them classes and methods. So the method would be the lesson. The class would be the unit. And you put all the classes together for the project. And, and that's the overarching or big idea so that you can get out the answer that you want. And, you know, I know that essential questions are the basis for engaging learners to promote thought and discussion, and we should lead the investigation with those. And I asked about the open-ended and the closed-ended types of questions to get us there. But I think what warrants maybe a little more discussion is, you know, how do you develop these ideas? How do you develop these essential questions? Basically, essential questions can be framed around four categories of big ideas. So effective skill learning, key concepts, purpose and value, strategy and tactics, and contents of use. I think it's on page 115, right? Yep. Four types of essential questions. Yeah. Right. It was with those figures, five, those figures that were on that page, you know, overarching and topical essential questions, like how do you ask these you know, essential questions. And they gave a lot of really good examples here so that, you know, teachers could start thinking about how this could be applied. But I know they call them overarching. And in the readings, they talked about overarching questions being ones that could go across multi-year curriculums. Like, we're not going to lose this question. This can be applied over every single year. So if I take mathematics, um, you know, applying the idea of algebra and and solving for an unknown, that that is the essential core. And whether it's algebra one, algebra two, trigonometry, you're always working towards solving towards that unknown. I guess I could call that the big I, you know, the overarching theme. (laughs) Yeah, the Uber. (laughs) Good way to put it, the Uber question. Yeah. So I thought that that was a good guideline. I think you're right that essential questions do need to be developed. I think if the question comes too easily to you, that it might be a good hint hint that it's not an essential question. That's a good point. To ask a central question, again, going back to the very first reading we did or of this episode, is like it's it's a good question, but it's also not easy to come up with. But it's also worth asking, I guess it's an important thing. Right. And if you're thinking about what the essential question is, you want to build your lesson on that maybe essential question. It's got to be thought-provoking enough that it will engage them and it provokes discussion and not so easily answered. 
you have to think about, you know, what is your intent by asking this particular question? What are you trying to get them to do? And they, you know, the open-ended question, you want to challenge them to think more deeply and creatively. And their example is about recurring and unsettled issues. So as teachers, we have to think more deeply about that kind of question we're going to ask to provoke yeah. that in our students. And I think the, also the important thing is that um, the essential question is a guide. It's kind of a direction. It's not necessarily something that students will be able to answer definitively, right? If you look at their example, um, let's say this is on page 116. If you look at, like, just looking at the example under the overarching one, like, who is a true friend? That's not a question you can easily answer. Right. The point isn't to answer it, like, saying, well, this person is a true friend, but it's to act to kind of have you think about it. Right. And it could be opinion, because what one person might consider a true friend, somebody else might look at it differently and think somebody yeah. else is a true friend. And if you just to connect it back to, like, Bloom's taxonomy, I think another good test of the essential question is that it will be something that's higher level by nature, if it's the right kind of essential question. If you ask something like, when did Columbus visit the New World or something like that, that's like a very basic low-level understanding. Oh, yeah, that's that's down at the bottom. We're, we're, we're in yeah, the basement. Yeah. <laughs> but like a question, again, they have uh, um, like how much progress in civil rights has the United States made since the founding of the country. That's like a, a question, higher level in Bloom's taxonomy, where you have to defend and argue and apply and, and all that stuff, right? Right, and analyze. Yeah, so that's not, you're not asking a basic level. So that's another way to test it, I guess. It's got to be something you could defend. And and it doesn't have to have any one particular answer. Not a straightforward answer. Like like the question we talked about, are numbers real, right? That's not, at least I don't think there's a, one answer to that question. Well, no, there really isn't one answer to that because it's a theoretical idea. And in fact, if... Um, you know, coming up with the idea of nothing, like when numbers were first came into existence, uh, zero didn't exist. And yet math still flourished for a thousand years without zero, right? Right, without Which zero. Which weird to think of. And I think a question like that also has the potential to connect to a lot of other co content area. It has a lot of deep implications that I think it's not narrowly focused on, on math or on something. I think that's just another way of covering a lot of stuff that you're asking these questions and hopefully, if your unit contains um, all these really interesting questions, they, I think the important thing, again, just tying back to the thing about questions, is students learn what are questions worth asking and answering. Um, I think that's really important because you want students, you, know, you talked about the drop-off point, right? You want students to be interested in asking questions because the reading ties to engagement, right? Because if they're not curious, then they stop engaging. And we want to keep them engaged. And we want to keep them curious. And we want to uh, validate their questions and that they're, they're, worth, they're worthwhile. And that if they're asking it, you're hoping there's a reason that they're asking it because they are curious about learning something or how something works or how it fits in in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I agree. And that kind of comes back to where we started this podcast, which is about questions. So I think that's a great place to end this episode. Okay. <laughs> I enjoyed discussing these topics, you know, with you and sharing your experiences as well as sharing my experience. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Have a great weekend. You too.